Aloha and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 128. We are steadily chugging along through the 100s. I'm Jeremy and of course this cast is always sponsored by CoolStuffInc.com, your number one shop for all of your Magic the Gathering needs with a sweet 25% bias as well as sweet credit rewards, CoolStuffInc.com is the store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. I'm joined this week, of course, with my co-host Edwin of UnnamedGameShop.com and Jim Casali of, did I get this right, CoolStuffInc.com. How are you guys doing this week? I was going to wonder how many times you were going to say that Cool Stuff is your number one shop for all your Magic, magic the Gathering needs. I was I felt like we were like stuck in like a spiral and you were going to just keep saying that over and over. Yeah. Ed, how you doing? Good. Oh, classic Ed, a man of few words. Well, we had some interesting developments today, as this cast is always recorded live. Clark Clan Ironworks is finally burned, burned, banned. How do you guys feel about that? Uh, personally, I think it's great. Um, it's kind of miserable to watch on camera, and it's very archaic in the way it operates so it's like good for modern players that they don't have to like complain about it anymore they'll find something else to complain about because all magic players do but uh, i am excited because that means that uh flow copies should be less expensive so i can buy one from my commander deck that i don't know what i'm going to do with it yet but i will find a way for, to use it ed does this have any implications among prices of other modern cards or potential vendor buy lists? Uh, so to address the Clan Ironworks ban directly, I'm not particularly a fan of the ban. I don't think the deck is too good. Um, I think this is just one of those times where Wizards is more or less giving in to people's complaining, which in my mind sets a fairly dangerous precedent towards banning cards in the future. President? Um, what? Did you say president? Pre precedents. Okay. Continue. Um, um, mainly because I think that Carthland Ironworks operates on a different axis than uh, a lot of its uh, predecessors, such as Top or um, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Eggs. Um, the problem with both of those decks is that the win isn't deterministic. Whereas Carcline Ironworks is, um, I think uh, it's much less time consuming to play than both those decks, mainly because you're just trying to get to certain, um, you're just trying to get to certain points where you can establish a loop, and once a loop is established, you just move on to the next loop, and eventually you have a win. Again, this is all deterministic. There's no probability that you can fizzle. It's just getting to that point. Um, and the fact that it's it doesn't seem like it takes up a disproportionate amount of the meta um, is um, may, makes it seem much less oppressive. And I don't necessarily subscribe to the argument that in the hands of skilled pilots, the deck is much more effective. I think that's also a fairly dangerous precedent. Since it um, since it leads to a fairly, um, it feels like if they're going to start bouncing the game around what happens around a competitive play, it just makes the quality of the game worse overall. Um, that being said, what's done is done. I think the biggest thing to take away from this is the fact that they directly address Mox Opal and Ancient Stirrings as cards that. Um, as cards that they identify as being problematic, um, and the fact that it's on a watch list, as it were, just something to be aware of that just because it missed the ban this time doesn't mean that Mox Oval decks or Ancient Strain decks won't be affected in the future. I think those are the two biggest things that I took away from the um, ban restricted list. The fact that they did address uh, Popper in. Um, in some small capacity as well, makes it uh, worth noting that that is something they're aware of, mainly because with the uh, um, foil MCQ, and gush, with for uh, addressing foil and gush, yes, 
Um, and this is important because they had announced that um, at the MCQ in Magic Fest Los Angeles in March, I want to say, uh, the event will be the first competitive uh, sanctioned popper event. So the fact that Wizards is also keeping their eye out on it um, is something worth noting, uh, especially oh. as we kind of, especially as we get closer to that, and it depends on what the turnout looks like and whether or not they're going to continue to have real support for popper events in the future. I actually didn't know that. I hope those type of events become more common. Um, Boo! Thank you, Jim. Yeah, I, I believe the professor had announced it on his on a video last week, and it was tweeted soon afterwards, and I think Channel Fireball does have it up on their uh, main page. I think it's interesting to see what will happen with um, Mox Opal specifically for vendor bios because you don't want to get stuck with those if um, demand drops or the deck just gets banned out of nowhere again. Do you think that the prices are going to drop long term on cards like Mox Opal? Because right now we're seeing people fire sell them on um, Facebook and basically everywhere, but do you think people were rebuying a Mox Opal, or do you think that now that it has a target on its back, confirmed by Wizards, that decks like Affinity and other, uh, I guess, um, the Bridge deck and uh, Lantern Bridge thingy and Modern as well, do you think these deck prices are going to drop as players become less confident in investing into these decks? Do you think that Wizards has gone too far in making money off the secondary market for Modern, and they don't want these players that have spent uh, hundreds or thousands of dollars on their modern decks to um, basically give up on the format. If you remember what happened with Splinter Twin, a lot of people just, not a lot, but a significant amount of my local players, once again, anecdotally switched to Legacy, for example, in EDH um, after the Splinter Twin ban, and we saw EDH rise after the Twin ban as well. I'm not sure if it's correlation there, but it's just something to keep in mind. So what do you think about the the trajectory of Mox Opal, Ed? considering that you will be having to put your money where your mouth is at some upcoming Magic Fest about it? I think there's going to be a fairly hard cap on uh, Moxopole. In my mind, there's already more or less a cap on it. I think it is now the most expensive card in Modern, surpassing Liliana with uh, after the UMA printing of it. Um, someone help me out here. It, it is the most expensive card. I think like retail and it hovers like about in 90. modern. Yes. Yeah, it is. No, I yeah. can think of ten more cards that are or ten cards that are more expensive in modern than that. Test print birds of paradise, Guru Island, misprint drowning man Island. But yes, yeah, it is the real card that's the most okay. expensive. Yeah. Um, uh, the fact that we've seen Mox Opal decks be fairly dominant in one form or another. For quite some time now, this kind of started last year with, uh, was it Pro Tour Rivals, Ixlon, and uh, Lantern being the winner to Clark Clan Ironworks. The fact that Mox Opal Dex are in Hard Scales Affinity was kind of a, the most recent evolution of Affinity. The fact that we have seen Mox Opal more or less be at the top of Modern for its entire lifespan, and we've never really seen a surge in price beyond the 85 90 ish dollars that it's at right now or that it was at previously rather makes me think that it's already um peaked in price as it were and it's kind of hard for modern to have a card that um is probably more than 100 dollars in price mainly because that's approaching the point where it's too expensive for modern and wizards has tried to keep modern uh, staples to be less than $100 for quite some time now through reprints and through the natural evolution of modern. Um, I I, th I suspect that people will have less confidence in buying Lux Opal in the future. I think you'll have a lot of people that will be looking to play other decks rather than modern unless they truly believe that hard scales of fandy or whatever is the best choice for a particular tournament that they're going to be playing at i suspect most people would rather just look at something like 
just play Grixis Death Shadow or play Is It Phoenix or or whatever, mainly because those aren't real on the radar for being banned yet. Um, I imagine that your casual modern player would be more in this mindset, whereas the more competitive player who just wants to pick up the best deck or whatever, they most likely already do own a set of Opals for modern. Yeah, it definitely feels like a lot of players will no longer have an affinity for that type of deck. So it'll be interesting to see where players shift, uh, players' money shifts in the future. Jeremy, it's ten minutes into this episode. You got to calm down. Oh, I can't. I'm gonna just turn it off if you're gonna be like this the whole <laughs> way through. I can't deal with fifty more minutes of this. All right, do you want to get into our credit winner then? Uh, no, I wanted to say some things about Mox Opal because you right, asked you had a question and you didn't let me answer it either. So. Uh, I don't think that players are necessarily not going to buy Mox Opals anymore if they want them for their deck. They're just less likely to keep Mox Opals than they would have otherwise to held on to to play for a deck they might play later. Like, you, There's not a ton of people, but there are a non-zero amount of people that will like buy everything in the format so they have access to all the decks. Those are the kinds of people that will probably sell them in the short term, and you'll be able to probably purchase them a little bit cheaper. But... I don't think that Mox Opal, like, I don't think that Mox Opal's next, like, it, it, I don't think it's available, or, or I don't think it's uh, not available. That's not the word I want to say. I don't think it's likely it will be banned on the next banning. Uh, I think that something has to happen significant to the format after this banning that causes Mox Opal to be uh, too good. Now, they said that basically right now they're okay with it, but if something changes, then they'll reevaluate. So right now, if you have Mox Opals, I don't think there's any reason to get rid of them if you're playing with them. Um, and even if you're not playing with them, I have enough, I have a feeling that enough people are going to be trying to get rid of them because be, they're afraid that they might get banned, that it's probably not worth getting rid of right now. Their violets are probably going to be pretty soft. Um, but I don't think that like in three months they're going to be banned. Like Unless something changes in the set that comes out that... like we don't know about yet. Like as it stands right now, if the, if the format's the same in three months, I don't think it, it gets banned. If the format's the same in six months, I don't think it gets banned either. I don't think this, this is the kind of, this is not the kind of warning where like, Hey, we're like really likely to ban it next time. It's more of like, Hey, we're going to keep it in mind just because it avoided banning this time. Doesn't mean it'll avoid banning every time. If there's an artifact deck, that's too good. Uh, same with the Ancient Stirrings, but I don't think that that's necessarily a card that people are that worried about because they're not very expensive. Makes so, sense. So, yes. Uh, let's do the credit winner of the week. And uh, our winner this week is Michael Horn, who says, I'm planning a trip to Magic Fest Kyoto this March, and I wanted to give Arbitrage a, a try. Uh, what, car what types of cards do I want to bring from the USA to sell in Japan? What types of cards should I buy over Japan to resell in the USA? Thanks for all your insights. Uh, I picked this question because it's something that we used to talk about a lot more, but probably haven't in the recent months, I guess. So, uh, Ed, since you frequent Japan most often, what kinds of... Well, he goes there a lot on vacation. And uh, what, what kinds of cards have you seen do well in Japan that might be worth bringing over from your LGS? Uh, I guess the long and short of this is that the cards that do well in Japan uh, are generally standard cards. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what standard cards do well. It kind of seems like there are certain cards that will always trend. Um, that always trend well here. It's really hard. It's really hard to say what mainly because it changes so frequently. For the most part, standard mythics um, tend to do well. I imagine that we'll need a little bit more data um, until uh, Magic Fest Cleveland to have a more established standard meta. But for the most part, people seem, always seem to be wanting to play wherever the most uh, the deck of the week. I guess if that's if that's how you want to put it. Um, whoever, whoever deck wins at Magic Fest Cleveland, the Mythics from there almost assuredly will be expensive. The trend seems to be that because Japanese people naturally gravitate towards just playing the best deck, um, 
they generally don't leave a lot of room for brewing or for playing standard casually. So because usually the choke point for people to build standard is are the expensive mythics. They generally have the biggest multiplier um, compared to the US. Uh, so some trends in the past, Carnage Tyrant has always done well, Rekindling Phoenix has done well. Um, Search for Escanta. Uh, History so control, of Benalia. History of Benalia. Most of these, uh, a lot of these, like Rekindling Phoenix and Search for Escanta, those were, um, uh, I realize Search for Escanta is a mythic. Um, control cards generally tend to do well. Uh, for a long time in Legacy, when Miracles was still prevalent, almost every card in the Miracles deck was more expensive. Um, Snapcaster Mage, uh, Counterbalance was a big one, where that was, um, back in its heyday, Counterbalance was almost twice as much in Japan. Um, Dual Eyes are generally more expensive here. Um, Power is generally more expensive here. Um, if you have access to those, it's worth it's worth bringing over and shopping around at the GP. Uh, vendors will have a look at those, and they'll generally um, their buy list will certainly be higher than what they would be in the U.S. Um, as for cards that you can buy over here, um, for the most part, you're buying casual cards. You can buy casual cards much much cheaper over here for the same reason that people generally gravitate towards the best deck in standard. People generally don't leave themselves room to be playing EDH and other casual formats. So you can always buy casual cards here for the right price, but the market on that has dried up quite a bit, mainly because a lot of the Japanese vendors have become uh, much more savvy to uh, foreign vendors um, who come over here and buy their cards. Um, and they've and the gap has closed quite a bit. It used to be much, much better to do that here, but the cards that have been good in the past um, are no longer so. Um, the best example is Oracle of Moldaya. For the longest time, you could buy Oracle of Moldaya um, for for less than $10 when it was like in the $16 to $18 range. It's a little bit more expensive now. It's like Oracle of Moldaya is I think like probably close to $30. It's like 35 it's 35 right but now you're finding most places charge close to 25 dollars uh for it because they know that it always does well and generally when these cards um disappear from stores they aren't really coming back because vendors are buying them and then taking them overseas and the supply on them isn't really being replaced um because no one no one comes to japan to sell their casual cards so um that's the long and short of the arbitrage. I won't give you really any, any more specifics than that, mainly because the market is quite dynamic. The market does change very, very quickly over here. So it's kind of hard to have more specific answers than just a rough generalization, especially when it comes to cards that you want to be bringing over here to sell. I've got a couple things to say on this. So to quote a vendor who Ed and I have worked closely with, uh, it used to be that you could bring 10k over here and buy 10k worth of Japanese foils back in the good old days, pay your for your flight and then do it every month and do an okay profit. That was back when before a lot of these Japanese casual cards and all that got reprinted with new uh, Japanese foils that are not necessarily as premium foiling, but definitely cheaper for players that are looking to uh, Japanese foil their decks um, with the prevalence of a lot more players being connected to the internet, so to speak, instead of just buying locally from their LGS, it's been a lot harder to be that guy to go to for Japanese foils when there's more and more people every day offering more cards. Um, I agree with Ed on what to bring over from the US. Uh, also, Blood Moon, I think, has been a pretty good card in the past when you look at the uh, difference between most Japanese BIOS and TCG Low. Um, if you want to get a leg up on people at like Japanese events or in Japan in general, I would wait outside of Ed's room with a broom and hit him when he tries to go to work. So you can scoop up all the Japanese foils uh, before he can get on site. But, uh, yeah. Japanese vendors are allowed to buy now. I believe they have to be a Japanese company. Um, 
so foreign vendors are not allowed to buy. So if a British shop is buying in Japan, they won't be allowed to buy cards. But Haruya, for example, is now allowed to legally buy cards in Japan. Um, it also depends where the Grand Prix is being held. Kyoto is like a two hour, two and a half hour train ride from Tokyo. And Tokyo's where uh, there's a greater concentration of shops, but a lot of the shops in Tokyo, there's a lot of foreigners that go there and try to buy cards. The other problem is for a lot of Japanese shops, there's no English translation of it. And a lot of times shops that will have cheap magic cards don't primarily sell magic. They primarily sell other card games. Um, so it's really hard unless you know what you're doing to uh, make a, a real profit. Now you will be able, even if you walk into Yellow Submarine or Haruya, you'll be able to buy Japanese EDH staples for way less than TCG, but you won't really be able to flip them for a profit. It'll just be cheaper for you to pick these up for your deck. So you'll see something like a $50 survival of the fittest, which is like below TCG low that's in Japanese, so like a Japanese survival. So you'll save money on it, but you won't be able to flip this card for a profit, if that makes sense. It's like just enough that you're getting a deal on your card for your deck, but not enough that you can make a profit on it. Uh, the only profit would be uh, buying and selling Japanese sealed product, but you need to have an out for that. Um, recently, some other podcasts in the scene have been pushing Japanese product maybe a little too hard, but I did not have a problem moving Japanese Ultimate Masters at a significant um, price increase. Uh, just be very careful. Um because you need to declare this stuff when you come back through customs uh, if you're bringing X amount. So just be honest and uh, see if you can make it work. But other than that, it doesn't hurt to throw a couple uh, tens of thousands of yen around to finish up some EDH slots in your deck. Obviously, Ed has more experience than me. So if he wants to chime in on anything I said, you're more than welcome to. If this is, I would, to be honest, if this is your first time in Japan, I would say you take the time to actually enjoy being here. Um, Kyoto is a gorgeous city. It is uh, the old capital of Japan. Uh, there's a lot of history going on in there. Um, if you, um, if you need help actually getting around and and doing things, just doing like your normal everyday things, transportation, finding a place to stay. Um, I will give you some advice on that, but if this is your first time in Japan, I would say that you spend as much time enjoying as possible and not worry too heavily about uh, the finance side of it. Honestly, a lot of people who do come here for events, they will generally just spend some time at the GP, either playing in sides or playing the main event, doing some amount of buying and selling and then just going out and experiencing the city itself rather than worrying too much about the magic of it. Yeah, I will be in Kyoto with some friends, and we are planning on spending half a day at the event and five days in Kyoto slash the rest of Japan. It's just way better EV to not deal with magic. Jim? Oh, I'm not going to buy. I, like, I'm not going to bring any cards when I go, eventually go to Japan. I'm not bringing any cards to go sell there. I might buy some like if they have English cards that are cheaper, but I'm going to play Pokemon Go because that's sweet. And you can get sweet things in Japan. That, that'd be my my thing. Go enjoy the scenery and go catch some Pokemon. But watch out because I think there are signs in like some parks that say, like, please don't please don't stare at your phone while you're playing Pokemon because then you'll hit people. And uh, Travis Allen wrote an article about coming over to Tokyo and buying sealed product and singles and all that. And you can read whether or not uh, it went well for him uh, on his article. Um, and that's like someone who knows all the prices that knows what he's doing. So if you think you're better than Travis, I guess you can try it, but it's not an easy task. To summarize everything, if this is your first time, you should probably not do it. And if it's your second time, then, uh, bring standard cards and buy casual cards, maybe. Anyway, all right, so Michael, thanks for your question. Uh, please send me an email at cartelaristocrats at gmail.com and I will get you your $25 gift certificate to coolstuffinc.com. If you'd like to win next week when we have our podcast, you need to leave a question on the coolstuffinc.com page that will go up hopefully uh, 
Tuesday the 22nd, assuming that Jan Ruby sends the correct episode and not totally my fault. I sent the wrong episode to cool stuff last week, and I was like, why haven't they posted this episode? Yeah, Jeremy sent them the same one twice instead of the new one, so uh, we got that figured out, and uh, we'll post it on Twitter also to help remind you guys, so uh, leave a question. If you choose your question, then you'll win $25 of CoolStuffInc.com store credit. Do we want to answer any other viewer questions? Because we had a lot of viewer questions. Thanks for writing in, guys. It's better than the weeks where two people write in. Uh, we can, but I don't know which ones in particular you'd like to answer. So would you like to read one? Uh, yeah, let me pull up the link. Ed, why don't you talk about where you're going to be while I find the questions? Uh, just on a more general note, in the event that uh, more people have questions along the lines of what uh, Michael's trying to ask, if you need some help with Japan, whether it's like booking your flight or uh, transportation, trying to get around, et cetera, feel free to um, send me a, a message on Twitter or post on the Cartel uh, Aristocrats Facebook page or something. Um, I uh, it probably we probably won't be answering too many more of these similar types of questions when when it comes to I'm going to X foreign country. What arbitrage card should I try and do? Mainly because it's uh, it's hard to give an exact answer. But if you need some help with the travel side of it, uh, I can usually, I'm usually fairly good with um, with places I've been to at this point, especially Japan. So I can definitely give some insights, especially because getting, coming to Japan for the first time can be a little overwhelming for people who've never been here before. Also, because a lot of people use arbitrage to make a living, and they're not going to exactly tell you how to make easy money because they need to do that to pay the bills. So a lot of vendors just straight up won't tell you. And that's why we charge you guys $0 for this information. Most of the easy money is also gone anyways. Um, You'll experience this when you come uh, to Magic Fest Kyoto, uh, Michael. But if you you look around when you're there at the vendors, you'll notice at the uh, GP vendors, you'll notice that there's a lot of foreign dealers who come from all over. Um, the most prevalent ones generally come from like Southeast Asia. So you have a lot of vendors coming in from China, Taiwan, uh, Singapore. Um, but you also have vendors coming in from Europe and America, obviously. So those are generally the people that you'll be fighting against. Um, literally so in a ring. Uh, yes. Um, so the competition is definitely hard. There's a lot of it, and um, most of the easy opportunities, again, like Jeremy said, are more or less gone. So take as what you will. I, I'd encourage you to just enjoy Japan as much as possible. Um, uh, the end of March is also prime time for coming to Japan, mainly because that is when the uh, Sakura, the cherry blossoms are springing. Uh, cherry blossoms are blooming, Jesus. Um, because it's springing, it's because it's right at the start of spring. Holy crap! Um, so it's it's a pretty good, gorgeous time to be in Japan um, at the end of March, and you can actually follow the um, the cherry blossoms there. What uh, uh, up Japan are blooming in the south when it's the most warm, and then it just slowly makes its way up. Um, so okay, I think Jeremy has a question. So. I'll- <laughs> Uh, I was just waiting to see if Ed would uh, elucidate on that, elaborate on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Uh, I'll let Jeremy take over. Yeah. Okay. So Anthony Fojas, I hope I pronounced that right. He says, hey, guys, pretty broad question. How do you evaluate success in MTG Finance? What is your definition of success, both for you individually and in general? And what are the things that you do to stay successful and also improve? Thanks a lot and keep up the great work. Jim, this seems like a good one for you. So I think that we all have different ideas of what it is to be successful for us. Like my goals are different than Ed's goals, which are different than Jeremy's goals. So my idea of success is, did I pay less money for this card than I could have when I wanted it? That's kind of a weird way to say it, but like basically when there is a deal to be had on a card that I want, did I make sure to to capitalize on it the best that I could? Did I save the most amount of money? Which a lot of the times, 
becomes, you know, did I pre-order this card that like is stupid bonkers and standard when it was really cheap? Or did I make sure to purchase, you know, enough copies during a reprint set of a card that I wanted to own? A lot of the times I don't really care if I could make money from it because I don't plan on selling them. And a lot of the advice that I give is not about cards that you can make a profit on. That's not what I'm aiming to do. So I'm successful when I can identify cards that are going to be more expensive than they are now, but not necessarily so much more expensive than like you could buy them for seven and sell them for 30. Like those are not the kinds of things that I'm looking for. Um, but generally speaking, as long as I am able to identify cards that do go up, even if it's just, you know, a little bit, and I was able to save somebody some money, you know, on this podcast, my goal here is to pick cards that I think that will be more expensive than they are now, but not necessarily cause like a huge buyout problem where like, oh, uh, you know, some card got on ban and it's now like twice as much money as it used to be, like, those are not the kinds of things that I'm going to try to do. So I feel successful when I find cards, I identify cards that maybe not other people have identified that will be more expensive than they are now. Ed, did you want to? We're waiting on Ed here. Grace us so, with your success stories. Um, I, I think Jim probably hits it on the head more accurately is I think for a lot of people um, who aren't willing to um, uh, invest a lot of their life into doing this, as it were, um, your degree of success is probably best measured in being able to make magic more affordable for you, whether that means you can now afford modern when you weren't able to previously um, through being a little bit savvy with trading in cards that you don't need for cards that you are, or trying to stay ahead of the curve with cards that could go up. Um, and it's better to buy them now than later. I think that's generally the most, um, that's the easiest measure of success to measure, uh, to be able to quantify for most people. Um, for me or for Jeremy, obviously, um, there's, there's a bond line that we have to meet. Um, is there, well, okay, maybe not for you. I mean, if I, if, if I, if I was different born, goals, right? If I, if I was just born to money, I suppose a lot of my problems would be solved. Um, eh. But uh, um, it, it's more or less just trying to find the right balance and doing whoever makes sense for you. It's hard to quantify success for me, mainly because I, I want to say like this works out better for me than most other people, and I don't imagine that a lot of people can. Did Ed explode? He roasts me, and then his internet connection drops. I mean, I'm not saying he deserves it, but uh, did you good pull thing out I paid. His... I DDoS'd I like, him. Did you pull out his modem cable? Yeah, Ed, do you want to try again with the internet that you made from your Magic Millions? Um. Uh, here, Jeremy, take over for a sec. I'll grab the hotspot and bring it closer to here. That might help. All right, and for those who are wondering why Ed's audio is always bad, he's recording it from across the world in a bathroom and or a closet right now for zero dollars. So we appreciate everyone listening because he is not being paid anything to record in a literal bathroom. So anyway, my definition of success is to create a community for Legacy, which took uh, half a year to a year. And after about half a year to a year of lending out legacy decks, uh, we started hosting local tournaments and those sold out. So we moved to another bigger venue and those have been doing very well. And so I'm actually enjoying TOing um, more than the magic finance game because you're able to create your own community. And obviously there's advantages like being the only vendor at an event or something like that, uh, financially speaking. Um, Ed has to pay the bills by buying and selling magic cards or being employed by people at American Grand Prix to buy and sell magic cards. So he has a lot more stress on him than most of us on this cast. Um, but there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, calling a spec correctly or something like that. And then I guess that's like a definition of success. Um, 
what are things we can do to stay successful and improve, like keep track of card prices, which I never do. And Ed always does. So uh, whenever like I have Ed or Doug work for me, the fact that they know every single card helps a lot because I just don't have time to memorize everything or monitor trends. Um, but yeah, like if you want to devote your entire life to MTG finance and like sacrifice some stuff, but live the dream of buying and selling magic cards, like that's what Ed has chosen for now. So it's respectable. It's just not my thing. Ed, what's your definition of success? Uh, I have no idea what I was trying to get back and say. Uh, did you guys hear the part where I said ma making magic affordable for yourself? Did I get through that part? or Maybe. Um, You're assuming I paid attention. Right, right. I forgot that you don't do, do that part very well. Um, I think without going too deep into it, kind of what uh, why I heard Jeremy hit that towards the end, um, if you want to devote like all your time to doing it, great. Uh, this is the t certainly the type of industry where what you get out of it is more or less what you put in. There's definitely a lot of store owners out there, a lot of backpack vendors who devote a lot of time to doing this, and it more or less takes over their entire life, which is a fairly unhealthy. Um, the pot is calling the kettle black. It's it's a fair. Uh, hey, I, I I can wholly admit it. Um, it's a fairly um, unhealthy way of approaching it all, especially especially for your health. Um, for example, I'm flying straight from here to New Jersey. I'll be in New Jersey. I land in New Jersey um, from Los Angeles on a red eye. I'll be there at like seven in the morning on Friday, and then see it's, you there. And then it's basically another like thirty five hours at the GP over the weekend. Um, and from there, um, I'll be crashing. Trying to get some sleep on mon Monday night, and then I'm flying straight from New York to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to Sydney, which is another thirty hours of travel or so. Um, See you there. It's definitely not the healthiest thing to do. Uh, it takes up a lot of time. I definitely make a lot of sacrifices to do this, but it works for me. I'm okay making those sacrifices because I chose to do so. Um, it's definitely not for everyone. And depending on, again, it's it's ultimately what your measure of success is and how much you want to get out of this. For some people, again, it's a way to supplement their hobby. For other people, it's a way to pay for college tuition. And for other people, this is their livelihood. Um, and the amount of sacrifice that you give is more or less what you're going to get out of it. Too deep for me. Anything else you want to add, Jim? Nope, that sums it up. All right, one more question before we wrap this up. Um, let's see here. Everyone that you were looking at, Jim? No, I already picked that one. Okay. All right, so Bruce Gray asks, do you guys think that the impact of peer-to-peer -peer trading platforms such as Cardsphere and Puka Trade have a significant role to play in MTG finance? These cards get exchanged, but the relative value of the cards exchanged is difficult to capture. Does the volume of cards move impact? Oh, does the volume of these cards move to impact prices, or do these platforms operate outside and parallel to the existing markets? Because we've touched on Cardsphere and Puka Trade in the past. Um, I don't know that they necessarily are make it any, like, I don't, I don't know that they do anything that, uh, just in-person trading doesn't already do. Um, they, these cards don't go to a store. They don't go on a shelf. They don't go on a, to a buy list. So for, uh, I think most stores, it, it doesn't really matter that much unless they're actively using it, but then they're just trading cards for other cards and they're not like making money per se. So I don't know how to like, I, I don't think it affects things as much as people maybe think. This is when Ed comes in. Right. Uh, I, I was just reading the question again to make sure that I was understanding correctly. Um, I think the fact that these peer-to-peer -peer trading platforms, it, it's basically opening up a very old-school-esque way of dealing with magic. In my mind, 
and for the same the for the primary reason that I don't use it is it does feel a bit um old-fashioned to me I guess for a lot of better way to describe it it's basically the equivalent of um hey I grow apples in my backyard I'm going to bring you some amount of apples and try and trade for a certain amount of beef that I need um right like in my mind I would just go and buy the beef that I need rather than try and swap commodities I already own for things I might need. Um, right. And obviously the magic analogy for that is if I, if I need money, I'll sell the cards I need for money and then I'll take the money and go buy cards I want. Or in, I guess the most closest um, example, of this was uh, would be to take trade credit, a tier cap bump from, you know, channel firewall card kingdom, what have you, and then just pull cards that you want out of the case they have. The fact that Card Sphere and Puka Trade operate and they basically create their own mini economy, as it were, in the sense that a lot of the points um, or the money, it's basically inbred. It's basically just a, um, God, I can't think of the words right now. It's an intrinsic piece of the system, makes it seem like you're going through an extra. You're just going through extra hoops to get what you want. Um, and again, for some people, that might work great. Uh, I definitely heard, have heard of people um, who have had success with card sphere before, um, especially the people who are working on a lower budget where it doesn't make sense for them to be spending the money uh, to be buying the beef when they can just get rid of their apples that they don't need instead. Um, and... Again, for them, I'm sure it works great if you're working on a tired budget and you, there's, uh, you need to be stretching your money more, then, the, then I think the platform works great, um, mainly because uh, with uh, limitations on being able to trade at GPs, for example, or for people who can't travel very far or who don't have access to an LGS that is close to them, then I think Puka Trade definitely, uh, Puka Trade and Cardster, they definitely fill that that niche in a market because there's definitely demand for it. There's definitely a, a time and place for people to be using that platform. But uh, for me, I it's those, those things are relatively just not really on my radar. And I think just referring to your question, it very much does operate kind of outside the realm of, uh, of the, of the, of the more uh, traditional TCG market in the way that exists on, TCG player, Card Kingdom, kind, uh, GPs, etc. So take it as what you, as what you will. I again probably not something I would use mainly just because I don't have the time or energy to devote to it. But I don't fault anyone who does use it, and I imagine there's probably quite a few people who do use it very well. My uh, only thing to add is Doug and other shops can use it to like help accumulate a buy list on cards that their customers need which is easier than just giving money straight out of your pocket just like having store credit essentially so just think of it like another thing of store credit where the store sometimes has it and sometimes it doesn't i think it's useful for a subsection of finance people but for most people that pay attention to finance it really just depends on your outs or like which cards you're looking for because the likelihood of you getting sent power is i mean i've seen like people tweet like that they're getting it so it happens but it doesn't happen nearly to the same amount as people trading into power at grand prix and generally power is what a lot of finance people's goals are so it's my take on it all right uh, Where can people find you guys? Are we not going to do pick of the week? Or are you just like? I guess we're doing pick of the week. Ed, what you got? I like how Ed goes second on everything except pick of the week because he's never ready to go first. Um, yep. I'm ready. Uh, my pick of the week this uh, week is um, uh, Divine Visitation. This is the mythic from Guilds of Ravnica. Uh. It has already gone up in price from its low. If you were able to pick these up about uh, before Guilds of uh, or uh, Ravnica Legions, before they started dropping spoilers on this, um, I think it had bottomed out at I want to say about three to four dollars or so. Um, it is now up to uh, 
I think about $7 is the cheapest copy you can buy on TCG Player. Um, so it has gone up accordingly, but in my mind, this is more or less the anointed procession of, uh, of Guilds of Ravnica. It's one of those cards where people knew about it. It probably has some fringe playability, which may or may not affect the price in the immediate future, but ultimately you're buying this card because of long-term potential. This is um, more or less the perfect card for uh, a token EDH deck, which there's certainly no shortage of out there. The fact that it's mythic makes me think that this has much longer... Um, uh, it, it may take a little bit longer to get expensive, but when it does, it will be probably quite a bit more expensive than Noitu Procession is. Um, for anyone who hasn't followed Noitu Procession, it's gone from a low of like 3 to $4 towards the end of its life when it was rotating out standard and people were just dumping all their Amicat cards. And now that the supply on it has pretty much dried up, Anointed Procession is back to pushing like $89, which I think is actually higher than it ever was during its lifetime in Standard. I foresee Divine Visitation much going the same way. It's possible we might see like some sort of tokens deck with the new Orzhov Afterlife mechanic. Um, we've already seen like Celestia tokens exist in some small capacity, playing March of uh, Multitudes, uh, Amara, various uh of like a random th these different token shells i think if one of them does become popular especially with uh magic fest cleveland right around the corner divine visitation will probably see a small spike and then if the deck does fall off or become less popular it'll probably go back down in price to where it is now probably not much lower than where it is now but long term um once guilds ravnica really starts to dry up i foresee this card just being like $12 in a year or something. So there's both short-term and long-term potential for this card. So if you're wanting to just stay ahead of the curve, I don't think it hurts to buy a playset now. And if you're looking to invest and hold on to something long-term, then this probably isn't a bad pickup to get like 20 of them, for example. Jim? Uh, my pick this week, I think, is a card that I was not as excited for when it was previewed, but the more I think about it, the more it's probably actually quite good. Um, I'm kind of high on a Ravager Worm right now. It doesn't look very sexy, which I understand it's a worm, and that's not really like what you want to be looking at, but uh, it feels to me like a, just a gigantic um, Chupacabra. Like It kills basically everything when it comes into play and fights it, uh, it often has haste, so it just like pressures your opponent on the same turn. Uh, I've been watching some of the Star City versus video stuff, and every time that Todd Anderson played Ravager Worm, it was impressive. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be the case going forward, but it basically rumbles with everything that is available in Standard. Anything that anyone's playing is not bigger than a 4-5 or 5-6. So... I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with picking these up. They're mythics and they're only four dollars. Uh, I can't I, I I don't know why they would be less money than they are now. Uh, even if they don't take off right now, if like in the next set after rotation, like this is the kind of card that could be very expensive, like Carnage Tournament, where like people don't realize how much they actually need the card until they play against it, and they're like, oh man, this deck this card is just like great. It's because it's just really good in the the mid range mirror match. So. Uh, my recommendation at four dollars, I'd be I'd, I'm in on Ravager Worms. My pick of the week is Fatal Push. This is almost down to two fifty, which was my target that I talked about on the cast like months ago. Um, it continues to be undercut by more and more sellers, and it's just something that seems like a no brainer to pick up a playset for yourself and then a playset to speculate on um, at that two dollar and fifty cent mark. So it's just something I've been keeping my eye on. Um, something I've been keeping my eye on as well that uh, is not a pick of the week are the Fastlands. Those are starting to rebound finally. Um, we're seeing rebounds across most of the lands across the board. Um, the Ravnica Shocklands are going back up now that supply uh, is starting to get sucked up by a lot of standard players. Um, the Battle Bond lands are going back up and the Fastlands are going back up. So those, it's just something to keep an eye on. Um, a lot of people have Spire Bluff Canals at like six. 
uh, shop wise. And these are like eight on TCG low now, but a lot of shops haven't repriced since that initial drop after rotation. So just uh, keep in mind on that or keep an eye on that um, as far as free money. So uh, where can people find you guys? Uh, I just wanted to touch real quick uh, in case anyone wasn't fully on top of it. Ravager Worm is the new card from Ravnica Allegiance. It has both Riot on it, which is which already makes it a big beater. And then I think its two choices are it fights and it destroys a non-basic land, I think. So it, the it, it's it has Riot, so you have to choose if it gets haste or plus one plus one counter. And then when it enters the battlefield, you can either have it fight another creature or destroy a non-basic land that has ability that doesn't produce mana. Our live okay. listeners would like to point out that it's in the go kit. The Ravager Worm? Yeah. I mean, that that probably won't matter. Uh, the guild kits, although are a great source of reprints for very rare cards, these this is the kind of card you could play four of in your standard deck, and it really won't matter. It'll still be quite expensive. Uh, just to touch on that really quickly, since I'm not actually following the chat, uh, guild kits are... Um, I don't think it impacts a huge deal. Uh, I know the Rakdos one has the spawn, the mythic demon that is quite expensive. And once that got spoiled, the price on the pre-order price on the demon dropped fairly quickly. Um, that being said, I don't think most stores uh, order a lot of guild kits. So sure, you can buy, you know, the five guild kit, five Rakdos guild kits out or whatever, and get your playset of. Uh, spawns, and then obviously you have a bunch of leftover cards, um, Dreadbore, etc. Like obviously the guild kits are fine to buy, but I think with how uh, relatively unpopular they were, uh, at least in my experience, I was told that uh, the guilds of Ravnica uh, guild kits didn't do super well, and the fact that they're not very well balanced makes it uh, hard for stores to just reorder them. Because in this example, um, in the event that you know, Ravager Worm does get expensive, or the Rakdos one um, is very expensive because of the spawn. Sure, people can go out and buy the Rakdos uh, and uh, Gruel Guild kits, but if stores are left over with the remaining three, they basically have no reason to go back and pre-order more. So I think these cards, even though they're in the Guild kits, it does have a, a noticeable impact on the price, but I don't think it's going to be as crushing as uh, as people think they will. Uh, with that said, I'm uh, at Edwin13 on Twitter. Um, I am in Japan for another few days, and I'll be flying straight to New Jersey and then Sydney the week after that. Jim? My name is Jim Casal. You can find me on Twitter at PHROST underscore. Uh, you can find me, my articles, every other week on gatheringmagic.com. Uh, and you can find me in the not-so-cold state of Florida. My name is Jeremy. You can find me on Twitter at MazuraMTG. I will be at Grand Prix New Jersey this weekend, except not really much on site. I'll be in Manhattan most of the weekend. Uh, as Ed says, there's more fun things to do than just be on site all day. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at cartel underscore finance. You can find our live cast every week at uh, Cartel Aristocrats on YouTube. You can find us on SoundCloud, MTG Cast when it finally comes back up because they've been having server issues. And of course, our sponsors at CoolStuffInc.com. Thanks as always to everyone for listening. As always, have a great week and bye-bye.